This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Meanwhile, in an abandoned warehouse. this new episode of Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse, where I'm going to be talking to Owen about his new book, which is called Cultural Democracy Now, What It Means and Why We Need It. It's a recent publication, come out very recently this year, published by Routledge, and we're just going to have a chat about it, talk it through. Um, I've really enjoyed reading this book, Owen. I'm so pleased you got round to writing it. It takes a long view of cultural democracy in, in in my reading of it in a kind of quite a philosophical way really looking at some of the ideas behind cultural democracy and and questioning the paradigms we operate in and, and suggesting kind of how cultural democracy could offer an alternative paradigm but how we've got to do a lot of unpacking of the things that we know and take for granted in the process so I thought oh in maybe to start with we could just um talk a bit or find out from you why you decided to write this book now and yeah what led you to kind of put pen to paper or start typing (laughs) well let's start with why did I write it at all and then we'll look I may reflect on why I wrote it now why I wrote it at all is because there has been a resurgence in the use of the term cultural democracy uh, we, we've discussed that in various episodes of, of Meanwhile in the Abandoned Warehouse. In fact, we started, didn't we, with the 64 Million Artists yeah. pamphlet yeah. and their the use of the phrase cultural democracy and our feelings that they were reducing it to something less than it ought to be. And so I suppose that's where it started. Me thinking nonstop about what we might mean about cultural democracy and how it might work and why we were still talking about it, why we decided to do a podcast about cultural democracy rather than uh, gender equality or, or whatever. And so I felt that it would be fair to say that many people didn't know what they were talking about. I don't mean that pejoratively, although it's obviously some people I mean that pejoratively. But most people simply took the phrase for granted. What I mean by that is, if I suddenly said to you, I think there should be something called racial democracy, or I think that we should have gender democracy, an obvious first question for you to ask, in fact, it would be rather remiss if you didn't ask it, is, well, what do you mean by that? And then... If the phrase just got bandied around and people started picking up on it, whatever phrase it was, gender equality, racial equality, uh, age equality, whatever the phrase was, then we'd get to a point where a little like meeting someone at a party and then you've got beyond the stage where it feels polite to say, excuse me, who are you? And so you just carry on and you never really know who they are, but you kind of carry on and you have these conversations. And then you you try and describe them to somebody. Well, it's the same with ideas, I think, that the term cultural democracy has been used. And as we saw it when we did our first broadcast with 64 million artists, it was used without any, any real questioning. 
any real problematizing. People just said, oh yeah, cultural democracy, yeah, I know what I mean by that, mm-hmm. sort of, and carried on talking about it as though everyone knew what they were talking about. And of course, the danger there is everyone's talking past each other because they're all talking about different things. Yeah. And that worried me. And I decided that I wanted to write something that actually answered the question, what the hell are we talking about? And what I didn't want to do was to write one of the books that had already been written. So, for example, in 2010, James Bow Graves wrote a book, which the University of Illinois published, called Cultural Democracy, The Arts, Community and the Public Purpose. And then in 2017, Alison Jeffers and Jerry Moriarty edited a book called Culture, Democracy and the Right to Make Art, which Methuen published. And, of course, Francois wrote a book called The Restless Art in 2019. Now, all of those books exist, and all of those books cover areas that don't need covering again, or certainly don't need me to say, oh, I've got something to say about that too. And what I thought hadn't been covered in all of those books that concentrate, broadly speaking, on practical activity, which, of course, is what what it's all rooted in, is the ideas behind them, that's what had not been covered. The actual ideas behind them, what do we mean by cultural democracy? And why do we think it's important? And how did we get to find out what we meant about it? And then, once I'd started there, it was a bit like going down a rabbit hole. I realised that one of the things we don't talk about, when we talk about cultural democracy, we mean culture and democracy, and we're putting them together. And cultures are made by communities or by people. So in order to ask what we mean by culture, we've got to ask who makes it and how do they make it? And that makes us look at communities. And then we say, what are communities? And that makes us look at people. And then we get to the point where we say, well, what do we mean by people? Because that's not a constant idea. What we mean by people has changed drastically over 500 years. It's changed drastically from society to society, from culture to culture. Descartes famously thought that animals were automatons because only people had souls. So Descartes thought people were animals with souls. I doubt if there's many people in the Arts Council of England, for example, who currently walk around saying the difference between cows and people are that people have souls and cows don't. So those questions seem to me to form a starting point. So I wanted to start by asking, what do we mean by people? Who are these people that we believe make cultures and require some kind of democratic organisation for them? I was going to say, maybe this is a good way of introducing the structure of the book, because you've got it, you've presented it in three parts. The first part is titled Autonomous Vehicles, the second, Cultural Landscapes, and the third, Making a Difference. And it's in those, certainly in that first part, Autonomous Vehicles, that you go into the, the history of the person and um, the idea of the person, which is a philosophical inquiry, I think, into how and why we think the way we do. You, you, you have the, this sort of way of putting it, which is about that question about what is it like to be us, which are, is really soul searching and is the kind of question you have to ask yourself when you're doing a PhD, for example, <laughs> about how, what is your relationship to the world? What is your relationship to knowledge? How do you, what are your belief, beliefs and how do your beliefs inform your the, your your paradigm, your kind of your relationship to these things. So it's a very, uh, it's a kind of critical look at those those frameworks um, and, and understandings of who who we are, who we think we are, 
And one of the kind of key threads is, I mean, there are many key threads through it, but is the idea of the meme. And I wonder if we could get to that as well in this, in this bit of the discussion, because that comes up quite strongly in the first section. Right. Well, the first section, as you say, is called Autonomous Vehicles, and it looks at what we might mean by being a person. What is it do we, that we think of as our personhood? And it starts with Descartes, which is an artificial starting place. In, and we could obviously start anywhere. Uh, but I started with Descartes because I think he has thrown this rather dismal shadow over Western civilization. It's a complicated story about why I think this about Descartes, but essentially he didn't invent, but he solidified the mind-body split. And this enabled people to ask questions that couldn't possibly be answered because they are questions about the imaginary and they don't allow for any evidence-based, by definition almost, they don't allow for any evidence-based argument. So I wanted to do several things in this part. I wanted to look at some of the things we take for granted. Most people in most cultures, most of the time, take their own starting point for any kind of inquiry to be the sensible, the obvious, and sometimes the only possible starting point. But in this section, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to look at history, how the notion of selfhood has changed in Western Europe over the last 500 years. And I wanted to look geographically at how that sense of selfhood has never been the case in many other parts of the world, in India, in Africa, in pre-conquered America, in uh, pre-conquered Australia. Those peoples had very different views of the relationship between people to each other and peoples to the natural world. So I wanted to look at all of that to basically start by shaking us free of the fact that, oh yeah, we know what people are. Because at best we know what we think right now people are. And even over our lifetimes, that notion has changed and where we draw lines about responsibility and, and the like has changed. So memes, I also wanted to look at process begun by the philosopher Daniel Dennett, which is reflecting on the results of a series of psychological experiments that had taken place uh, over the last half of the 20th century. Some of these suggested puzzling results. They suggested that um, we don't think as much as we think we think, that much of what we think we think is actually just an excuse that in in Dennett's terms, we we rationalize a lot of our activities and then think we've thought of them. So I wanted to look at that as well, because this also makes clear something that has worried me for many years, which is that there are a lot of scientific research results that don't find their way into cultural and political discourse. So we still operate with early 20th century views of what Freudian views of what people are, when in fact consciousness researchers, brain researchers, have all moved on and come to very different views. So one of the ways this is exemplified is the notion of memes. Memes are first called memes in Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. He talks about the fact that Darwin invented a process, a kind of algorithmic process, that evolution as Darwin describes it, is something that doesn't necessarily 
get restricted to the animal kingdom or living creatures. And he argues that it's actually a description of a method of reproduction and mutation. And he and others, Susan Blackmore, for example, go on to discuss this and Daniel Dennett as memes. He produces something called universal Darwinism. He says, let's generalize what Darwin says. Darwin says there is a way of reproducing things where they have sufficient imperfections in the reproductions that they will mutate, and they live in an environment where some mutations will be more beneficial to the continuation of the species than others, and that's what we mean by natural selection. And information obeys that same set of rules. And he argues that once people got brains big enough to construct abstract thoughts, then that enabled the growth of memes where memes are abstract thoughts which are transmitted from person to person in the same way as germs, and we get infected by ideas. Now, that's not central to the the entire point of the book, but I think it's important because it raises the question, who are we and who do we think we are and how do we know how we think we are is correct? And the notion of memes stands in contrast to the notion of rugged individuality. Mm. I mean, that's what I was going to say about the positioning of the first part, is questioning the dominant knowledge and idea that we are standalone individuals. We're, you know, some, some people are geniuses and some people aren't, and some people have the, the wherewithal to become successful in life because of their self-determination and all this. And that the, the thing I'm reading into it, which I guess relates to things we've been talking about in the podcast and my own understanding of myself in the world is that things are relational. So it's as much about relationships and our relationships to each other and to the things in our environments, uh, the things in our environments that seem very significant and influential. But still, that's not... And obviously, so a lot of the things you're you're reading, uh, I'm reading about in this part chime with me, but also my feeling when I'm reading it is that but still, the dominant narrative is very much f- very far away from this idea. Like you talk about, uh, I think in the last part of that, this this idea of, I mean, there are many, many concepts that you draw on, but one of them is Ubuntu. And the idea, I mean, there's a this quote of, of the definition of Ubuntu, a Zulu idea, a person is a person through other people. So you can only ever develop a sense of identity through your relationship with others and through others. I am a human because I belong, I participate, I share. So there's a sort of a relational aspect to life, which seems very, very important, but one very far removed from the idea you go on later to talk about um, IP and intellectual property and ownership as things we need to problematise and, and think about when we're talking about cultural democracy. Uh, so I just thought that was worth highlighting. Yeah, if I, do, I can just step in a second there. I think that I think you're correct. And I think one of the things I want people to get out of part one is the fact that we've been told a lie. Margaret Thatcher never said there is no such thing as society. That's one of those made-up quotes like Play It Again, Sam, which Humphrey Bogart never actually says in Casablanca. But she said something pretty close to there's no such thing as society. And the argument there is what I refer to as rugged individualism. It's the argument that in some a set of footnotes in this book, I relate back to Tarzan and Edgar Rice Burroughs' novel, the original novels about Tarzan. Tarzan is thrown as a baby into a jungle as a result of an air crash, is brought up by gorillas, and nonetheless is human. 
and is able to teach himself to read from some books he finds. He's able to teach himself to speak by verbalizing what he's written. And essentially, he's a fully formed man and he's able to go back to Greystoke and become Lord of Greystoke, etc. Now, that's a particular view of what people are, which is based on what Descartes says and is fundamentally wrong. People are not that. I would exactly say what you just said about Ubuntu. I would say that human beings are, are socialized, not born. What, what is born is a baby primate with the brain capacity to become a fully-fledged human being. And then the first thing that happens to them is they get sur they're surrounded by a group. The group varies from society to society. It may be parents, it may be parents and an older sister, it may be an extended family, it may be a tribe, but they're surrounded by people, all of whom are doing things and encouraging them to join in in one way or another. And they learn to be human socially. And then later, as a kind of intellectual trick, some but not all cultures offer you the option of learning to pretend to be separate. Mm. Oh, well, I'm going to pretend to be separate now to take a distance view on all of this. And that's more by way of a psychological experiment than what you really are. What you really are is the sum total of all the cultural and social aspects that you've been inoculated with, that you've been infected with by various means. And that seems to me important because with everything from community art onward, we have been told that this is a kind of added extra. Real artists do things on their own. However, there's also this possibility of putting things together. It doesn't produce necessarily high quality work, but it's very, very gratifying for the people involved. Not true. The fact is people Except if they're culturally damaged, except if we have societies which are dysfunctional, people grow up as members of one or more communities. And those communities determine in the end, right back to fundamentals, things like what do they mean by art? What, do, what are the boundaries for them of singing? You know, does it, is it possible to sing tunelessly? Varies from culture to culture. One culture's tune is another culture's monotony. But all of those things are decided by a community into which you are born before you get a chance to say anything. And all you can do is grow up and be part of that community and in the end try and pull a part of it your way within the boundaries set by that culture. Mm. So that's, I think, what I want people to take away from that section, mm. that we've just been lied to, flat out lied to, when people have insisted that culture is the work of individuals who come together afterwards, as though we were organising a Christmas dinner. Yeah. You know, you, do you want to come to my Christmas dinner, Sophie? <laughs> you've, got, you've got a choice. But the, the, the whole concept of dinner is something we've been handed mm. when we were born or when, as we grew up. And I mean, maybe going into the, the part two, cultural landscapes, for me that section is you, you, you talk us through our relationship to the tools that we use and essentially I mean again this is my reading of it is that capitalism has produced a situation where we're getting more and more distanced distance to the uh, to the tools that we use um, so we you know you, you've talked before and we've talked on the podcast about cultural democracy having a relationship to the idea of owning the, the means of production and distribution 
And capitalism, of course, has, has meant we've become far removed from, from owning <laughs> means of production. So although we're able to potentially use these tools, we don't necessarily do so as producers. So I thought, yeah, maybe you could tell us a bit more about some of the ideas there. You give some examples of the ways in which there's been some, you know, examples of democratization that's driven by capitalism and material and, and marketization, for example, through companies like Kodak. You talk about the electric age in this in this chapter as well, about really great examples like um, ready-made made, uh, cake mix, <laughs> things like that. So we're kind of all these little gimmicks and, and inventions are a way of sort of this this removal from our uh, from our understanding and our skill base in 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 production. Yes, again, uh, at the risk of sounding like a paranoid conspiracy theorist, <laughs> I think one of the one of, one of the ideas I look at in the second part is the idea that the development of market capitalism was not entirely accidental and the result of impersonal market forces. There have been, since the middle of the 19th century, entrepreneurs who've deliberately set out to construct not just products that they can sell people, but frameworks within which those products will appear essential. So yes, Kodak is, is a good example of that, in that George Eastman invented the camera not as uh, a way of making photography more accessible, but as a way of making a particular kind of photography accessible to people and then persuading them that the kind of photography he was making accessible was photography. And of course, one of the results of that is professional photographers continue to use different cameras from the Kodak Brownie cameras with different focal uh, distances, different lenses, and were able to produce photographs that looked nothing like holiday snaps. But Kodak were able to produce a very simple mechanism. Initially, in the 1880s, 1890s, what you did was, and it sounds surprisingly modern, you bought a camera, a very cheap camera, which was already pre-filled with film. You took the, you took the photographs, then you took the whole camera and film back to the shop and got another one at a discount. And then the film was taken back to a factory, it was developed and sent back, and you got your prints. So all that business that constituted, up until that point, photography, was placed in a factory, and you were just given the end bit. That's the same, yes, the same as cake mix. Mary, Mary Baker's cake mix, that's a famous example from advertising. That The sales in the 1940s started to drop, and a man whose name escapes me for the moment, but he's mentioned by name in the book, he was, an, he was a, a man who was, did consumer research. He discovered that there was a sense of shame for the American housewife in using cake mixes. And that if you took the egg powder out of the cake mix and added instructions to add two eggs to the beat the mixture, then add two eggs, the adding the two eggs gave back the sense that I'm making a cake. And everybody was happy. Housewives were happy that they were involved in a creative activity and they weren't just the slaves of manufacturers. So yes, there are, and there are a number of these kind of examples. I look at IKEA and the design of stores, which are deliberately designed in a certain way to make you go right around all the product range before you, before you go to the checkout. 
and they're arranged as theatre. So as you walk past the towel section, you see other people as though they were actors trying out towels and looking looking at them, etc. And so you're you find yourself being tempted as you walk around with things you never even knew you wanted. Also, with many department stores, Ikea being a, also a good example of this, the restaurant is key. The restaurant in Ikea is placed usually towards the end of the store. It provides a break. It provides it enables you to sit down and have deliberately subsidized meat, Swedish meatballs and mashed potato or whatever. And while you're doing that, you'll find yourself talking about, should we, should we have got those glasses? We may as well get them now, mightn't we? There's no point in not getting them. Oh, but I, that, that towel was really good, wasn't it? I mean, yellow and blue towel, it fit in the bathroom perfectly. I'll just go back and get it. And they have discovered that the, the subsidised restaurant drives people there and being in the restaurant, having walked around the shop, results in purchases that people wouldn't, didn't intend to make when they arrived at the store. And in some cases, people have come for the restaurant and didn't intend to make any purchases, but nonetheless leave happily carrying some, some goods. Now, the point here, there's several points, not just that capitalism is a wicked, wicked thing, yeah, well, we, possibly it is, but that's not the main point. The main point is that there has been research since the early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, into how to manipulate people along these lines. This stuff has been known, and stores have been designed around it, and it is not, as I said, a series of accidents. It's not been stumbled upon accidentally. People have carefully researched all of this. During this process, capitalism, which, as we said, may or may not be a wicked thing, has run out of things to sell us. There used to be a joke about products being split, categories spreading. You, know, you used to have deodorant. Now we've got underarm deodorant, leg deodorant. We used to have body cream, Nivea cream. Now we've got face cream, eye cream, nose cream, hand cream, foot cream, elbow cream, etc. This is as capitalism started to discover that markets were maturing. So you, you sell cream, you're the people in Germany who make Nivea, what do you do? Well, firstly you say, how are we going to get men to buy cream? Cream has been sold to women, how do we sell this to men? That W market. Then you say, well, you know, how can I sell two creams to Sophie and two creams to Owen? Face cream and body cream. Right. How do I get Sophie to buy three creams? Face cream, body cream, and eye cream. Hand cream, foot cream, and so on. Nonetheless, by the turn of the 21st century, we were running out of body parts, <laughs> or capitalism was running out of body parts. And so there's a move towards what we call, what has been termed limbic capitalism. The capitalism that goes inside your head. And so we get the quantified data movement. Well, let's sell you a Fitbit. Now, the point is, you need to monitor yourself. I know you can keep healthy. Wouldn't it be better if you knew exactly how many steps you'd done at exactly what pace and exactly how many calories going up those stirs or how many you spent doing it? And so you, you get inside people's heads and you start marketing desires. And then social media come in and it's now your friendship networks are being mediated. Wouldn't it be good if you got more followers? No, it wouldn't actually, thank you. But thank you for asking. So we get this approach and the point, the wonderful thing is as far as we can see at the moment, the amount of real estate inside your head is nearly infinite. 
there's no end of what people can sell you. Once they're selling you, deliberately selling you abstract products that are but have no physical entity necessarily at all. They're selling you software as a service, friendship as a service, health as a service, etc. Well, you can just keep ramping that up. So that's where that goes. And I, I produce a series of, of examples because one of the things I think is, has been deliberately, well, not deliberately kept from us. One of the, yes, let's say, let's go with deliberately kept from us. One of the things that's been deliberately kept, kept from us is the fact that there's a history to all of this. And so people tend to be told and tend to or tend to assume that everything's very recent and everything's suddenly changed. And, oh God, the world's very different now than it was 10 years ago. Broadly speaking, the answer is no, it's not. This is part of a long journey that's gone on since department stores opened theatres in the 1860s and invented the theatre of shopping. And department stores in the 1860s, 1870s first invented shopping as a social activity. Prior to this, people, men and women, went to the store to get something. I need a new dress for the wedding. I'm going to the store. The, the invention of department stores was the invention of shopping as theatre. I'm going to go to the shops, window shopping. I'm going to go and see, oh, they've got zebras now at the, at, at, at the store. There's zebras there this week. And there were indeed zebras in, in New York department stores. Not, that's not hypothetical. There would be, there would be displays, mini zoos, etc. Because people would, would go in there and it would become going shopping. So that was invented. And that there's a history to this. And as I say in chapter 12, celebrity was also invented. Mm. In fact... Half seriously, I can pin it down to about 1915 and the, the invention of Photoplay magazine and, the, and Murray Pickford and Douglas Furbank's wedding when they were mobbed, mm. both in Europe, where they'd never been before, and then America when they got back. Beatlemania or whatever was a, a shadow of what Douglas Furbank's and Murray Pickford experienced in the first, in 1915 or thereabouts, 1915, 1918. And indeed, Apple Records was a mere shadow of what Murray Pickford was the primary mover in setting up, which was United Artists. Again, in the, in the second decade of the 20th century, when she said, who are these distributors who are distributing these things and ripping me off? Why don't we integrate everything vertically? We'll have United Artists, we'll own the theatres, we'll own the distributors, we'll make the movies. Two things worth pointing out there. One, that happened, as I say, before 1920. Secondly, it was, it was primarily organised by Mary Pickford, not any of the men involved. Maybe, oh, and I'm where it would be good to talk about part three as well, because that's also where you bring these ideas together and give examples of more current, I guess, like more recent examples of cultural democracy through this triad of relate the relationship between community economics and politics and how culture, culture kind of relates and cultural democracy relates to these three areas. Do you want to say a bit about how that chapter kind of came about and how it's structured? One of the things I was aware of when I was writing the book was that it didn't start with a chapter, What is Cultural Democracy? And that's because I felt the first two parts needed to be stated first because otherwise they would appear as mere detail and they wouldn't be given the attention that I felt they needed to have before we looked at what we meant by cultural democracy. Now, I'm... I'm happy to say that uh, 
in large part, Arlene Goldbard, I think, put me onto, onto the definition that I, I eventually landed upon. Rachel Davis Dubois is somebody who, she was born in 1892, and she was a, a Quaker activist uh, in, in the United States of America. And she's not the first person to use the term cultural democracy, but I think she's the first person to define it in the way that I think is useful and continues to be useful. She says, um, political democracy, the right of all to vote, we've inherited. Economic democracy, the right of all to be free from want, we're beginning to envisage and to plan for courageously. But cultural democracy, a sharing of values among members of our various cultural groups, we've scarcely dreamed of, much less if we devise social techniques for creating it. So she defines cultural democracy as part of a triad. For a fully-fledged democracy, we need to have democracy in the arena of politics, democracy in the arena of economics, and democracy in the arena of culture. And I think that designates a set of relationships which underpin everything that I think we've meant by cultural democracy, everything the community arts movement in England in the 70s and 80s meant by cultural democracy. And I think that the next occurrence that I talk about is the, the Council of Europe published that paper towards cultural democracy in 1976, which was written by J.A. Simpson. And that also talks about cultural democracy in terms that relate to Rachel Davis Dubois' definition. And I, I draw examples from Arlene Gobard and the Cultural Policy Collective and numbers of other people that use the notion of cultural democracy in, way, in ways that I think are completely compatible with the, the way that I'm using it in the book. So in an, I think I referred to all of this in a previous episode, yeah. in one of the Genuine Inquiry episodes, but there's one called What Might We Mean by Cultural Democracy? And I think that one reiterates this argument in more in more detail. Yeah, and it's and it's helpful to have in front of us because one of the things we've I guess been concerned with, and that was that's what spurred the whole podcast series on, was to root the ideas of cultural democracy in these broader um, social political movements. So you mentioned the book about how important it is to connect up to these other movements, movements like the commoning movements, the debates and practices around experimenting with universal basic services, universal basic income, open source platforms, cooperative movements, you know, that there is so much going on <laughs> around the world in relation, that which kind of share these ideas. And it's not something that, and, and the way that artists or arts councils or practitioners use it, it's not, it's not necessary, we don't just mean it at a project level, it's not about participation example. So I think that's really important reminder and contribution that this is, is this has tentacles that are much broader and um, and is much more radical in its ideas. And um, but I guess this, you know, for us as well in the podcast series, we're constantly thinking, well, okay, these ideas are great. <laughs> There's loads of really great stuff happening around them. And you mentioned some examples in that last part, which coexist with with capitalism and with neoliberal states and con and contexts that we're all working in but they've not necessarily got to a point where they're overthrowing those, <laughs> those regimes. They're kind of coexisting alongside. And I just wondered if you, in this sort of final bit, if you could say 
I guess what contribution you hope the book will make to changing minds, um, to in inspiring people? Yeah, where, where do you think it can go? One of the things that I hope, if I hope for much at all, is that the idea of losing interest will gain currency. When we're talking about limbic capitalism, when we're talking about the kind of capitalism that is uh, telling you how you should live and how you should think and how you should feel and how you should define yourself in relationship to other people, then if it has an area of vulnerability, it's in the fact that it requires you to remain interested in the arguments. I found when I was... When I was um, writing the book, a year or so before writing the book, I decided that to not pl play any active role in social media. Now, I didn't go on Facebook and I didn't go on Twitter and announce I was flouncing out. I didn't say, oh, I've just, I realise this is all a cotton, goodbye. I just decided to step back and I discovered that as I stepped back, I got less interested. And the more I stepped back, the less interested I became. I think there are a number, a numbers of areas in which this pattern follows. For various reasons, we didn't have a television that we used for several years. And the result of that is that getting back into watching television proved very, very hard. I had simply lost interest in which detective series was on now, which detective series was better than the other, and which game show was on and who was doing what etc and once the interest was lost it proved very difficult to bring back in fact I, I still don't think I've got back into detective series with anything like the regularity I used to have <laughs> yes that's obviously that's a anecdotal evidence and b it's me and c it's mighty convenient that it happens to fit in with my thesis but having said all that and had those as caveats I think that losing interest in the provisions being handed to us by big data is a movement with considerable political potential. A 21st century equivalent of the Rochdale pioneers, if you like, who came together to buy things in, to sell them to co cooperative members. An early example of a, of a retail commons. Now, I think when we're all under attack by social media, etc., we might want to consider coming together to lose interest jointly because I don't think it's something that is to be done individually. And I think just like overcoming any, any illness or disease or any, any set of habits, losing any set of habits, it helps if you gain another set of habits. It helps if you move out of one culture into another culture. And so I would like to see cultural activism culturally democratic activism, moving towards positively losing interest yeah. in some of the work that we claim we oppose. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to oppose Twitter, we just need to take no notice of it. Yeah, and see what that frees he up. He says oversimplistically. <laughs> yes, exactly, um, yes. Owen, I'm aware we've been chatting for 45 minutes and there's still many more things we could say about the book, but um, maybe we should leave it there because we've, we, we've got our live... Um, discussion coming up where Arlene and I will be talking to you about the book in uh, again so we can zoom in on some of the other issues um, that it raises. Is there anything else you wanted to say before we close this session? No I will place some of the references that I've been making in the in the notes for this episode and we'll have a 
much more interactive session in two weeks time on Meow Live because there'll be I think 70 places available for people and I think we will take as many questions and have as op- an open as discussion as we possibly can and so if anybody has uh, got any misgivings about it, if anyone thinks this man is talking nonsense then on May the 21st that will be your chance to uh, say that out loud. <laughs> I'll also add finally that the book uh, is not a cheap book due to Radbush's publishing policy which I'm sure is, is, is necessary, forced upon them by the nature of international capitalism but there is a code there will be a code available if you register for the Meow live session there will be a code available for 25% off the book great we'll put all those links in the show notes as well thank you Owen thanks so much and we'll I'll look forward to talking to you about it more in a couple of weeks thank you very much speak to you soon speak bye, soon. bye. the podcast please go to the website there you'll find much more details about topics talked about links to references and much more you can find the website at meow.net that's m-i-a-a-w dot net see you there